the gospel according to Matthew, to the closing verses. I think if you're using a church Bible, it is found famously on page 1001, a number that means something completely different to those of you who are over 50, if I remember rightly. And uh, we're going to read verses uh, 16 to the end of the chapter. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, as Hugh has said, this is the second part of a three-part series of studies in what we usually refer to as the Great Commission. And uh, not that anyone is really interested in titles, but I gave the series the title, Putting the Great Back into the Great Commission, partly because I'm not sure that uh, churches today or we as individual Christians feel that the commission is so great after all. Uh, it may greatly intimidate us. Um, it may, uh, whenever we hear this is what's going to be preached on, we put on our body armor to protect ourselves from what we think are the inevitable appeals for three things, going, praying, and giving. And since we're not in a missionary convention, we're not having a baptism at the end of the service, the two contexts in which these words, I think, are usually preached on, I thought it would be a healthy thing for us to be able to take a, a kind of objective look at what Jesus is actually teaching here. And I suggested last time that the Great Commission falls into three parts. The first is its foundation, that all authority has been given to Jesus. And one of the things that we were thinking about uh, last Sunday night was the fact that that actually is an event that has taken place. Of course, as the Son of God, the Son always had authority. But Jesus is not here speaking simply as the Son of God. He is speaking as the Son of God who has become incarnate, has been crucified, has conquered death, has borne God's judgment against our sin, and has risen in triumph. So, in a sense, this is an event that has taken place in our Savior's life. His Father has given Him all authority. And it's on that basis of His reclaimed authority, the fact that He has been given the name that is now above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, as Paul says in Philippians 2. This is what Matthew is recording, that a new era has been ushered in 
by the resurrection of Jesus. Now the crucified Savior is the one who has regained for us all authority in heaven and on earth. And what he's telling the apostles to do, and you'll notice in verse 16, it's only the 11 apostles who are left whom he is addressing. What he's telling them to do is to go from this mountain to all the earth and actually to reclaim what now belongs to the Lord Jesus. And they are to do this, obviously, by the preaching of the gospel. In a sense, these words are connected to the words we were looking at this morning. Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church. And typically, Peter did not ask Jesus a kind of obvious question. Well, how are you going to do that? And if he had asked Jesus that question, maybe Jesus would have said, you wait, and I'll tell you later. Because these words are the answer to that question. How is the Lord Jesus going to build the church? He's going to build it, first of all, in the light of His authority to build it. And now, secondly, by sending the apostles into the world with the gospel. And it's these words I want us to focus on this evening. Go therefore. This is such a big command, it needs a solid foundation. The solid foundation is all authority is His. And the command now is therefore, go therefore, in the English Standard Version, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, this is one of those statements in uh, the Gospels that it, it just helps us, I think, to, to understand the grammar and the syntax of what is being said here. Uh, I'm sure many of you know there is actually only one main verb in this statement. There's only one main verb, and that main verb is make disciples. That's the main verb, and it's surrounded by three participles. Excuse the little uh, lesson in grammar. Uh, there are three participles, going, baptizing, and teaching. I thought, maybe this is, maybe this is like a great uh, symphony with one theme and four movements, but actually that's not a very good illustration. It's, it's maybe better to say this statement is like a triangle. In the middle of the triangle is the command, make disciples. But that making disciples, that triangle as it were, it requires three sides to it. It requires this foundational side that the only way they're going to do that is if they go. So, by going, they're going to be able to make disciples. And then, well, 
what does it mean for them to make disciples? That's the other two sides of the triangle. They make disciples by baptizing on the one hand and teaching on the other. So, if I can just spell out what this doesn't mean, it doesn't mean, first of all, go, then secondly, make disciples, then thirdly, baptize, and then fourthly, teach. It means make disciples, and if you're going to do that, then the circumstances require that you go to do it, because I want you to do it among all the nations. And how are you going to do it? By these two realities, baptizing on the one hand and teaching on the other hand. And if we, if we grasp that structure, I think it really helps us to understand what it is that Jesus is really saying. Now, the most obvious thing is that if they're going to make disciples, they need to go. Jesus says, all authority is mine, therefore you are to go. And I think we noticed last time that in a sense, as Jesus is standing here on the on the hinge between the whole of the Old Testament revelation and the beginning of this new age, the beginning of the realization of His kingdom. And so, the language changes radically. The language of the old covenant is, come. Let the tribes of the earth come to Jerusalem. Why? Because that's the only place that God has promised to make Himself known. The Jerusalem temple is, as it were, the one place where provision is made for the forgiveness of your sins. The holiest place of all is the one place on the whole of the earth where God has said His heart will be and His face will be made manifest. And so, people have had to come. Think of Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch. Why, what was he doing in Jerusalem? He knew that he had to go there if he was to meet with the God of Israel, the true and living God. But now you see uh, God has raised up a new temple altogether. Destroy this temple, said Jesus, referring to Himself, and I will, I will raise it up on the third day. And now that temple is no longer located in one geographical situation upon the earth. And so now they are to go, and they are to, they are to bring men and women and boys and girls in every part of the world, not now to say to them, here is your bus pass to the Jerusalem temple, but by faith come to trust in Jesus Christ. And so, there is this radical leap forward in the way in which God is advancing His purposes. And it is one of the phenomena of history that this took place, that for 2,000 years there has been a going with Jesus, uh, that the Christian church is, is not located in George Street in Edinburgh or somewhere in Geneva or somewhere in Atlanta or wherever the headquarters are, that you don't need to go to Edinburgh to be saved. Some of you may think that's been a very good change. You need to go to Jesus to be changed. 
And so now the word is go. Jesus is pressing them to go. And I think it's important just at this point to remember you were not there, and He's not speaking to you. Especially with words like these, there's, there's such a tendency to, to read them as though Jesus were speaking to me, that He's not speaking to you. You weren't there. There were only 11 people were there. And I think we'll never feel the weight of this as we read these words, as we tend to do as 21st century Christians in the light of 20 centuries of this command being obeyed or sometimes disobeyed. We will only feel the weight of this command if we understand this command was given to only 11 men. Only 11 men. And you see, when you begin to take that in, you begin to realize why the first statement in these words is so important. You think of the number of Christians there are in the world? Does it really matter whether all authority in heaven and earth is Jesus? There are enough of us to do it. But there are only 11 of you. And uh, when you get back to Jerusalem, you are going to be able to muster just about the same number of people as there are in this room. And you're going to tell them what you've just been told to do. So, my dear friends, this is worse than being in Afghanistan. This is what is so overwhelming about the Great Commission the sheer magnitude of the task. When they go back to Jerusalem, we're told, aren't we, in Acts chapter 1, they, they were able to get 120 people together. As far as they knew, the only people who believed in Jesus. And they have just been told that they are to take this message to the ends of the earth. I've always loved that story. I think I read it when I was a teenager. It's a myth, of course, of Jesus going back to heaven and the angels saying, so what's the plan? And I'm pointing to these 11 men and the angels somewhat skeptically turning to him and saying, well, what's plan B? And there is no plan B. And when you think what these men have been, so this is a massive thing don't inject yourself into this command. He's not speaking to you. He's not speaking to you any more than He's speaking to you when He says, go and sell all you have, give it to the poor, come and follow Me. You don't imagine He's speaking to you when He says that, do you? That may have an application to you, but you do understand that was spoken to one man. And I think we will only feel the enormity of this and correspondingly only feel the thrill of being a 21st century Christian when we understand we weren't all there on the mountain. There were only 11 people on the mountain. And this gives us such a sense of the absolute reliability of the promise of Jesus to build His church 
If Simon Peter had said to him then, Jesus, tell us how you're going to do it, and he said, well, one of you is going to betray me, and you, Peter, are going to deny me, and at the end of the day, we're going to meet on a mountain, and there'll only be 11 of you, and I'm going to build my church throughout the earth using just you, 11 men, and what I'm going to do through you. Uh, you wonder if Simon Peter would have uh, just turned around and gone home and thought, as Jesus' family themselves thought, that perhaps he was on the verge of losing the place altogether. And so, I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus is speaking just to these 11 disciples and telling them, this is the only plan I have and then now to look back and to think that that plan throughout all the ages has woven its way down through the centuries, through Europe, down into Africa, across the waters to Ireland and Scotland, and eventually to us, because these 11 men did exactly what Jesus told them to do. So, the apostles are to go. The second thing the apostles are told to do, going they are, and this of course is the big thing, they are to make disciples. Jesus, how are you going to build the church? I'm going to build the church by making disciples. Now, this is a very interesting word. I don't know if you've ever read a book on being a disciple. It's actually not a word that we use all that much today, I don't think. Interestingly, people speak about discipling other people, but we don't actually speak a lot about disciples. Isn't that interesting? It's almost as though we like doing it to other people. Here's a very interesting thing. Um, let me pick up the quiz this morning. In how many books of the New Testament is the word disciple used? Answer, this is really interesting. The word disciple is used about 250 times in the New Testament, but it's never used after the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Isn't that interesting? It's used by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and of course Luke wrote Acts, and then it just stops. But the really interesting thing is, well, there are lots of interesting things, but this is really interesting. I think this is really interesting, so you've got to think it's really interesting. The book where the word disciple is used most frequently is Matthew's Gospel. It is probably the reason when, when students of the Bible have kind of asked themselves the question, why did these authors write these books? Why is it that there are these little differences in perspective? For whom were they writing that, that they've concluded, among other things, Matthew was actually seeking to write a kind of manual for disciples? Um, because he uses, he uses the word disciple about, about just over 70 times, and he uses it only once of anyone else except Jesus' disciples. He uses it once of the disciples of John, but over 70 times he uses the word disciple of Jesus' disciples. It's never used beyond the Acts of the Apostles, and Matthew, what do you see what Matthew is doing? 
Matthew is contributing to the very thing that Jesus told him to do. Jesus told Matthew he is, let's work it out, 9% of the disciple band, if my arithmetic is still working. And he has been told to make disciples. Imaginatively, you can almost think, I wonder if you thought this when you heard about Afghanistan. I immediately thought, Lord, what can I do? And here's Matthew. You know, what do we know about Matthew? He, he was good at counting money. Um, what can I do? What can I do for the church? What can I do to, to help make disciples? And so he writes this gospel that, as you know, is these like five big chunks of teaching that are all brought together in a unique way in Matthew's gospel. He writes the discipleship manual. And the fascinating thing is this, excuse all these little statistical details, but there's only one occasion in Matthew's gospel where he uses the word apostle. Jesus gets the twelve together, the twelve disciples together, and Matthew tells us, here's the list of the apostles. That's the only time he, he, the only time he uses the word apostle to describe the twelve. Now, why is it that? Because this is actually the point where they become apostles. They've not really been sent out until this point. They've been gathered in until this point. So, he describes the apostles throughout his gospel those who followed with Jesus, he describes them as the disciples rather than the apostles. Because you see, he's, he's Matthew got it. Matthew got that what Jesus was telling them to do was to continue what he had done in their lives. And that meant very simple things, being brought to the Lord Jesus, being brought to the Lord Jesus, being with Jesus and His people, being taught by the Lord Jesus, and becoming more like the Lord Jesus. And in one way or another, everything He says in the Gospels has got to do with that. That's what discipleship actually is. It's, being, it's, being, it's not just being a pupil. You know, the Latin word discipulus means a pupil. It's not, it's not just being a pupil. It's, it's coming into a, a bond with the person who teaches you, a personal bond, so that, that you esteem him. That's, I think that's pretty much gone in the Western world. In some contexts, it's still there. It's, it's still there in some parts of the Far East, isn't it? Um, I remember an occasion where uh, someone I'd had as a, as a doctoral student was looking after me in a country in the Far East, and he kept doing things for me. And I, I turned to him and I said, you, you don't need to do these things for me. Oh, he said, I must. I said, well, why? Because you're my teacher. I thought, none of my Scottish students ever said that to me. None of us Americans ever said that to me. And you see, this is it's the, it's the bond, and it's the kind of bond that sees the teacher not just as one who is imparting information to you, but one who's, who's imparting himself to you 
and, and bringing you into an intimate bond of trust and love so that you want to be like him. And that's at the, that's at the end of the, that is what it is all about. If I can put it this way, the only, thing, the only things about you that will last for all eternity in the presence of God are the things in which you become like the Lord Jesus. That doesn't mean that you'll be cloned, mercy on us, that we'll all look the same, but there'll be, there'll be just that something about us. I was thinking that uh, over, the, over the long years of life, I've had, the, I've had the privilege probably of meeting and having some knowledge of some of the, the, the most valued Christian leaders in the Western church. And the thing that struck me is the incredible differences in personality, absolutely incredible differences in personality on the one hand. And on the other hand, the same basic likeness to the character of the Lord Jesus. And you see, Jesus had done that for them in a sense, in a sense, this, this wasn't rocket science for Matthew. It was, it was all, all I need to do is to tell them what He did for us and what He taught us. And in this way, this is, this is, as it were, Matthew's little contribution to Jesus' command that by going, the disciples themselves are to, well, to, the, to multiply themselves. And it's very interesting, and it's, it's, actually, it's actually in Matthew's gospel that Simon Peter seems to feature pretty largely. Um, and I wonder if this was also in his mind. You know, um, those who read my gospel, they'll, they'll need to know that, that disciples are not successes from day one, uh, that, that Jesus makes disciples the hard way by transforming us from what we were into what He'll make us. You wouldn't have believed if, if you were one of the 11 standing there when you saw this altercation that we looked at this morning between Simon Peter and Jesus, an altercation. I mean, taking him aside. Who would we think, who would we think in the church if the Lord Jesus appeared and one of the elders took him aside into a corner to fix him out? It was appalling. And yet, this is the very one through whom the kingdom of heaven is thrown open on the, on the day of Pentecost. And Matthew understands this, and so, so he writes Peter large into his gospel because he wants us to understand the kind of Jesus whose disciples we are. He's not a regimental sergeant major who shouts at you if you don't meet the grade. He's a Savior who draws you to Himself, who picks you up when you fall, who doesn't break the bruised reed or snuff out the dimly burning wick. And it's Matthew who quotes these words from Isaiah, interestingly. And he sees all this as, as what it means to make disciples.
But then we come to these other two participles. Jesus, Jesus is going to send them into the world. Jesus is going to use them to make disciples. But making disciples means, if I understand what he's saying here aright, making disciples means planting churches. And, and you'll see that. Um, th- think about it this way. Um, did Jesus not get it the wrong way around? Don't we first teach the gospel, then make disciples, and then baptize? But Jesus says the way you'll make disciples is by baptizing and teaching. By baptizing and teaching. And this gives us just a, this just kind of opens a little window into what I think sometimes evangelical Christians find a bit difficult to handle in the New Testament. That the New Testament places enormous emphasis on baptism. And think of some of the things it says about baptism. First Peter chapter 3, baptism now saves you. Oops. Did I misquote that? Baptism now saves you. Or Romans chapter 6. Don't you know that all of you have been baptized, have been baptized into Christ's death? All of us who have been baptized? Or Galatians 3, is it 27? All of you have been baptized, have, have put on Christ. Or even Peter's words on the day of Pentecost, be baptized for the washing away of your sins. Isn't that a bit much? Would you say that about baptism? I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're a pedo-baptist or a credo-baptist, would you say that about baptism? Don't, don't you feel that's, that's a bit much? So, what's going on here? Let me try and get into it this way. Um, if you were my generation, which a few of you are, you would remember days when you might say to somebody, um, how did you become a Christian? And they might say something like this, Kelvin Hall, 1955, or whenever it was. And, you know, to half of us here, that's complete gobbledygook. You don't become a Christian by going to the Kelvin Hall. You say, what do you mean? Well, here's what I heard so many people say. So, no, tell me how you became a Christian. I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade. Now, answer me this question. Does anybody become a Christian by getting up out of their seat and walking a hundred yards? No, they don't. So, so, is it that these people have not become Christians? No, it's not that they haven't become Christians. It's that they're, they're using an entire uh, code language to describe many facets of God working in their lives. And all of those facets of God working in their lives, uh, perhaps through an invitation of a friend and them saying, yes, I think I'll go, 
and hearing the gospel and having seen something in another Christian, all of those facets in their lives, in a sense, come to a, a, kind, of, a, a kind of concentrated point in them saying, Kelvin Hall, 1955, or Haringey, 1953, or, or wherever. It's a kind of shorthand for something massive. And so, if you'd, if you'd bumped into any of those 3,000 people who were converted on the day of Pentecost and said, how did you become a Christian? My guess is more than 2,000 of them would say, I was baptized on the day of Pentecost. I was baptized for the washing away of my sins on the day of Pentecost. They weren't saying you didn't need to trust in Christ. But what they were saying was, the, the big thing in my life that brought me out of darkness into light was, as it were, signaled and expressed by this monumental moment when I was baptized. And you see, you would really misunderstand Jesus if, if what you felt about that is, you know, if I'd been one of the apostles, I would have said, okay, those of you who want to be baptized, we're having a series of meetings for the next six months, and we will teach you what it means to be a Christian. But they didn't, did they? They baptized, and then they taught. And, and you can see that's actually what happens in the Acts of the Apostles. Acts chapter 2, they're baptized. What's the next thing you read? 41, verse 41 of chapter 2, they're baptized. What's the next thing? They are addicted to the Apostles' teaching and to the prayers and to the fellowship, which is, as it were, the mark on their lives that what this outward expression signified was realized in their lives, and they kept on going. And, and this, is what, this is what it means to be a Christian. Do you think one of the saddest things about our contemporary Christianity? I don't know if I've ever heard a Christian say, I'm seeking to live a baptized life. I'm seeking to live a baptized life which in a sense means Romans 6, one of the most important passages in the New Testament, has been irrelevant to you. Galatians 3 has been irrelevant to you. First Peter 3 has been irrelevant to you because you've lived a Christian life without giving a second thought to the fact that you're baptized. And you see how different that was uh, for, for the New Testament Christians. Um, to be baptized for them was to have a lifelong stamp upon them. And I'll tell you the reason. Because the emphasis here is not just on the fact that they were baptized, which is where our emphasis tends to be. It doesn't matter how we do it, how much water we use, what age people are. It doesn't really make much difference. I have never in my life heard a sermon at a baptism that has focused all the attention on the fact we are being baptized into the name of the Blessed Trinity. 
That's what's happening to us. His name has become our family name. That doesn't mean that baptism changes me inwardly any more than when you adopt a child and that child is given your family name that does anything to that child inwardly. But it marks that child for the rest of that child's life in a way that the child can never escape from the fact that they have been adopted out of one family into another. And if they've been adopted out of a bad family into a gracious family, eventually the time will come when they see that that family is theirs and that family lifestyle becomes theirs. But in a way, one of the things that produces that change is not that the father says, you need to behave like a member of our family. What actually begins to produce it is that people keep calling you by the name of that family. And, and so you see, this is, this is why Peter is able to say, baptism saves you. Because what did it mean? It meant that you were brought into communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That, you know, 20 years ago, I would have said, that is awesome. I don't know what the expression is today. But to think that's what's happened to me in, in being made a disciple by being baptized that I'm able to say with the Apostle John, my fellowship is with the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's who I really am. So that if I say to you, and I, I don't, if I don't know what your name is, I say, who are you? You're going to tell me what your name is. If you don't know me and you say, who are you? I'm going to say, I'm Sinclair Ferguson. That's who I am. I can't think about myself without knowing that's who I am. When my parents went to, the, went to the little booth and they said, what's his name? And they said, he's going to be called Sinclair Buchanan Ferguson. And the fellow said, that sounds a little grand for that little fellow. I didn't know anything about it. It did nothing to me inwardly. But friends, my whole life has been determined by that, absolutely determined by that. And all I've got is the name Ferguson, and that's a worthy name, but it's very far removed from the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then you see there's the other side of the triangle, isn't there? Uh, baptizing and teaching. And, and these two things go together, and this is, this is what Matthew is contributing to, isn't he? That we learn, because that's the way we become disciples. And of course, I want you just to notice what, what Jesus is saying very precisely. Jesus, let me put it starkly, Jesus did not say to the apostles, go and teach I don't know if some of them were like people I've met who love to teach, but they don't love 
the people they teach. Okay? Now, Jesus did not tell the apostles to go and teach. He told them what they were to go and teach. They were to teach them to… Now, listen to this. They were not to teach them in these terms. Now, what I want you to do is I want to teach… You want to go and teach now, uh, so there's going to be some theology here, and you teach them some theology and maybe teach them a bit of the history of the Old Testament. No, he said, you have to go and teach them to observe everything I have commanded you. Now, friends, I think that may just be the single most disobeyed commandment Jesus ever gave. It, it frightens me to say this, but I think it's a very unusual church that's led by people who ask the question, what is everything that Jesus commanded them to observe that He had taught them? And, and that apparently was how Jesus thought you would do church. by observing everything that He commanded. And of course, you observe, you observe in more ways than one, don't you? To observe by obeying. But you, you only learn to obey, not, not just when you've been told the truth, but when the truth has captured your affections. And your affections are, your affections have, a, have an impact on your volition, that, that, you, that you begin to… you will what you see as desirable. And as, as Jesus tells them to teach them to observe everything He has commanded them, you can… you catch this sense. This is, this, is not, this is not a matter of Him sending eleven professors into the world. This is Him commanding these eleven men to pour themselves into those to whom they bring the gospel. And the marvelous thing that Jesus says to them is that this is the way, this is the simple formula to teach them to observe absolutely everything I have commanded you. I find that challenging for this reason. I'm not sure I can recite everything that Jesus commanded them and I've been a Christian over 50 years. In a way, I should hang. I'm not, I'm not fit to be preaching to you tonight. That here's a commandment Jesus gave, and after 55 years a Christian believer, I can't recite those commandments. I mean, I can take a good stab at them. And so, all of this, you see, all of this, this is kind of massive what he's saying. Baptism becomes massive to them because they're being taken out of the old family and brought into communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they're being taught how to live the Christian life. And it's not rocket science. You just do what Jesus commanded you to do. Now, how is all that possible? Um, I've been struck recently. It's not that I've been looking for a job, but I get a Christian newspaper that's full of job advertisements, and uh, the job advertisements are always for jobs in churches, and I've begun to notice a pattern 
in these advertisements because they'll tell you what their vi the vision statement of the church is. And I've been fascinated to notice that very consistently in this particular unnamed Christian uh, journal that I get, almost all of them tell us that this church exists to teach and to evangelize. And it's, it, re it really is not accidental that they never say this church exists to worship. There are just too many of them, what the sociologists would call a cluster. So, they're, like there's something going on that, that gives people the sense that the Great Commission tells you to do two things. It tells you to, to teach, and it tells you to go and get others that you can teach. And underneath all that is a, is a theory that flies in the face of like 2,000 years of the history of the Christian church, but it has become almost an epidemic that the church does not exist for worship. And our, our services together do not exist for worship. What we exist for is teaching and reaching. Well, that's the Great Commission, isn't it? But oddly enough, that rests, tears the Great Commission out of its context, doesn't it? Because when was the Great Commission given? And we've not touched on this, but you can see it, can't you? When they saw Jesus, they worshipped Him. Why does Matthew say that? Because he has spent 28 chapters of this gospel telling us what the fruit of Jesus' disciple-making was. And the fruit of Jesus' disciple-making was worship. And because that was so, and there was a world out there in which Jesus is not worshipped. These eleven men were to go into all the world with the gospel. And you weren't there. So, does this have anything to do with you? Well, obviously, it has everything to do with you because He told them to go to all the nations to teach them to observe everything that He had commanded them. And the only reason that you're here tonight and I'm here tonight is because there have been links in that chain that eventually knocked on your front door. And if you open that front door and are Christ's, then you become a link in the chain to the end of the ages of being obedient to the Lord Jesus. And there's a myriad of ways in which you can participate in this great church-building program of being a worshiper. pointing others to the way of becoming disciples. But you'll never be the second, really, until you become the first. That's where to begin.
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You again for the teaching of our Lord Jesus. We, we know when we, when we read through the Gospels and the Epistles and, and read the story of the early church and then find ourselves in the, in the amazing world of the book of Revelation that Christ is so much bigger than we ever imagined, so much greater, so much more wonderful, has so much more authority. Confess that we've minimized him. Uh, we, we hear about Afghanistan again. Think of people we've known who may have served you. They are so few. And it's all hopeless. And in our own country, it all seems so hopeless. There are diminishing numbers of us. But Lord, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of your mouth, not least the words that came out of the mouth of Jesus. And most of us in this room, perhaps almost all of us in this room, have been baptized. And we're ashamed to think that we, we scarcely gave it a second thought. We, we, we haven't taken in that we've been given this new name. And this new name is the family name of the God of the entire universe. And you've given us this disciple manual. And we've, we've paid all too scant attention to it. We're so ashamed. Sometimes we've thought we're doing well in the Christian life and others have encouraged us. And Lord, we thank you for any progress that we have made. But we know we're a long way from observing everything that you commanded your apostles to teach us that we might be your disciples. And we pray as we, Lord, we pray this every Sunday really, and every time we read your word, and every time we go to bed, Lord, help us to begin again and help us to be better disciples of the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name.